You are listening to the Compliance Conversations podcast by Healthicity. If you work in the healthcare industry, you know how crucial compliance is to your bottom line, your reputation, and the success of your organization as a whole. If this is your first time listening, welcome. A transcript of every Compliance Conversations episode can be found at www.healthicity.com resources, along with a ton of other thought leadership materials. You can add us to your RSS feed and iTunes, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Now, let's get on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Compliance Conversations. I am CJ Wolf with Healthicity, and we're excited today to have a, our, our guest, Eric Allen, with us. Welcome, Eric. Yes, thank you for having me, CJ. This is a true pleasure and honor to be here on your podcast today. Yeah, we're, we were talking before we started recording. Eric's in, in the sweltering heat of Texas. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, I am. Yeah, but it's a good place. And so I've spent some time there, as many of you know, and wonderful institutions and things. And we're going to talk today about investigations, which is a really important topic for compliance, right? And um, But we want, as normal, we like to give our guests just a moment or two to tell us a little bit about themselves, you know, maybe what brought you to compliance, what you're doing, what you've done, what you're doing, those types of things, anything you're comfortable sharing. Okay, thank you. Um, well, I've been doing compliance pretty much my whole life. It's almost the only thing I know. And it's also one of those things, as most of you guys know from working in compliance, it's one of those things that's very difficult to explain to people outside of their profession. Uh, but in my time in compliance, I've worked in academia, academic medical centers. I've done some consulting work and I've also worked in different hospitals as well. So uh, my experiences goes across general compliance, institutional compliance. And at some points in my career, I've also veered off and done almost everything except HIPAA and NCAA <laughs> compliance. So the animals, yeah. the humans, you name it, I got all these acronyms in my head and federal agencies. So I know what it's I, like, it's, it's like another language sometimes, isn't it? And I appreciate what you said about, you know, not knowing all the time how to explain it. Like, you know, I'll try to explain it to my kids and they're like, what do you do again? I teach people about rules. Oh, that sounds really boring, dad. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of people in healthcare get it. We know that it's a very regulated industry and we appreciate your years of experience. Um, and we know you've you've been involved, you know, as most compliance folks are in, in some sort of investigation at some point. It might be small, might be medium, might be big. So we thought we would talk today about um, investigations a little bit and would love to hear, um, Eric, your thoughts on, um, you know, we so you've identified you need to investigate something. Usually one of the first things you're doing is you're starting with an interview of some sort. And so curious if you have any thoughts or strategies that somebody can deploy um, to successfully conduct an interview when, when you're doing an investigation? Well, it's one of those things that it's never the same. And for those right. of you who have done this, it's one of the biggest challenges because you will get a tidbit of information that you need to peel back somewhat like an onion. And each time you have to use a slightly different approach uh, but you want to be consistent if you have a policy in the specific area in which you are going to be doing the investigation. So in particular, if you're doing research misconduct, that is very prescribed because of the implications of what you're investigating. Essentially, someone's career is on the line. Uh, so we must stay in line with that. And outside of that, you want to make sure that 
all your, you know, the exploratory questions, the who, the who, the what, the where, the how, and the when are all addressed. And as you peel back each layer, you also tend to increase the list of people you need to talk to. And I think that's the most important thing is learning how to be that active listener and being able to try to drill down for finding out the additional things you need to explore. Uh, because when you get that initial tip, it's usually just that the tip of the iceberg. And as we all know, the majority of the iceberg is much below the actual water surface itself. Yeah, that's such a great point. And I appreciate you just saying that each interview is like different, right? And it a lot of it has to do with personalities. Um, like you said, what's the tip? What's what started the investigation, right? And and like you said, you rarely have all the information. That's why you're doing the investigation. And what somebody brought up in the hotline or something might not even be it might not, at the end of the interview, you're like, oh, this is going in a totally different direction. <laughs> um, I know that's happened to be sometimes you you follow that issue and then they are bringing up all these other issues and you have to like keep it straight to say, OK, those are valid points They're They seem to be outside of this particular issue. Let's jot those down. Let's deal with those, uh, you know, in another parallel path or something. But um, that's really, really good advice. You, do you when you're getting ready to interview, do you? kind of write out your questions ahead of time, um, depending on what the, the concern is, or do you wing it or combination of both? Or, <laughs> I mean, my personal approach, I like to call it the shotgun approach. You're going to have to do everything because you're going to have to ask questions specifically about the information in which you got the tip. And as you said previously, it can lead you down different paths. Sometimes you can identify the need to do multiple investigations off of that one tip. So your questions have to figure out what this person knows and what that can unveil to answer all of the who, what, where, why, and how questions so that you can actually say you understand everything that happened. You understand that there's a clear path for rectifying it if there's a need for reporting or what the total ramifications are, because as the compliance person, you have to reiterate that up the chain and down the chain and sometimes outside of the organization. So yeah. you in your mind have to think about all the different things that you have to do downstream and pull as much information as that interview as you can uh, to achieve your goals of doing all of your follow up work following the actual investigation. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, in, in regards to kind of what you were just saying, you know, sometimes you start in and you think you might have the subject subject matter expertise when you start, but then it goes into an area that maybe you don't have the subject matter expertise. Um, you know how to do an interview, you know how to do an investigation, but you know, you, you might not be able to, um, to do everything that you want to do until you get more subject matter expertise in what you're looking at. How do you, how can you get that subject matter expertise while still, you know, trying to maintain confidentiality and, and kind of the, the private nature of an investigation? That is probably the biggest challenge with an investigation, especially if you're at an organization in which you have extremely high level investigators that are at the top of their game or the top of their field. So that the type of work you're on a map they're going to be asking questions about is known by people in the industry. And it's usually a relatively small network of experts. Um, and in that statement in and of itself, you want to try to vet these individuals, one, for having knowledge. And two, try to do some sort of a conflict of interest assessment, meaning if that person is 
also potentially going to be an expert to help you understand and evaluate things. You don't want them to have a conflict with the individual. They're not on a grant. They're not collaborating in any initiatives because uh, that definitely would not work. But on the flip side of things, you also want to be careful that you're not pitting two different rival companies, so to speak, or individuals that are working on the same type of uh, research slash when you get into the IP realm or you get into right. devices, uh, it gets a little tricky. So you kind of have to walk the tightrope of finding that individual that doesn't have any apparent issues and then trying to negotiate either, depending on your organization, um, some type of agreement that would not be like something similar to a non-disclosure right. or some other confidentiality type arrangement. Yeah, that's such a good point because, you you know, you're you steered us a little bit into the direction of research because you're right. A lot of that, you know, there may be a non-disclosure agreement already um, and you're not allowed to disclose certain things, especially, you know, in the research realm and, you know, academic medicine. You know, you're working with, uh, you know, for-profit companies. They have their legal agreements, all these sorts of things. So working through all of those nuances can be really, really uh, like walking on eggshells sometimes. It did, you know, do you, have you used in the past, like doing investigations under um, like attorney client privilege? What, what would you say? How often has that been the path versus doing it under compliance or you're doing it under compliance, maybe halfway through it, you're like, eh, this better go under attorney client privilege, or is that not an area that you've had to deal with very much? I've had to do it both ways, to be honest with you. And I think it's kind of one of the things we talked about earlier. We don't know what you have until you start digging. So I've been on cases in which it's just strictly compliance in my lane. And then all of a sudden I get thrown a curveball. I have to go contact the lawyers and say, hey, this popped up. We might have to do this component under privilege while I do the parallel component for compliance. Uh, and it is one of those things that you just never know. You just have to have the contacts and make sure everyone is aware of their role within those processes. And that, again, you're staying within your policy. And sometimes you have to go outside of your organization um, for the particular counsel that can assist you in some cases. So right. I haven't had to do that one personally, but I am aware of having to farm that out. Yeah, absolutely. And um, that's, you know, it kind of drills home a point we've talked about other times on the, on the podcast of just having a good relationship with your own legal counsel. Um, you know, we, we've in the past in past episodes, we've talked about you know, reporting structure and, you know, OIG and some other agencies have some grief about the compliance officer reporting, you know, directly to the in-house counsel. But even though if you're not reporting to them, you still need to work with them um, and kind of, you know, balance all of those uh, different needs of the organization, so to speak. Um, how, how long on average do your investigations take? I mean, maybe just give me a a, a a range. Like, can you get some investigations done in days, and some take months or years? What what's what have you experienced? I've had some that have taken days. I've had some that have taken months, and I've had some that have gone on for years. And and, and it just depends because sometimes you'll have a tip that comes in that has no merit. And you can right. squash that in a couple of days. So that's a slam dunk is what I would like to call that one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they don't happen often. But then I've had cases where I've had uh, the Office of Research Integrity call me and tell me, well, we've got 
a complaint from a professor that says so-and-so student has plagiarized their work. And these are the sections that we want you to look into. By the way, we reviewed your policy and we think you need to make some tweaks after you do this investigation. Ah. And in that case, it's more challenging because the timing is applied in the policy. So you're restricted within those timelines and you can uh, you can request extension. So that's where you get into the few months there. Uh, And when you start getting into years is when you have really serious investigations where you have egregious actions on behalf of some of the staff and positions or whoever. And you're having to go through articles for the last 15, 20 years. Look at all their grant work, collaborations, literally their whole portfolio for the last few years. Right. That's when it becomes to be hugely, hugely time consuming. And typically that also means you need to get that expertise that can also come through it and help you tease out details as well. So there are a lot of different caveats that you have to consider. So timing can be days to years. Yeah, that's kind of what I've experienced too. I appreciate uh, that response. Um, let's take a, a brief uh, break um, and then we'll be back with, with Eric Allen to talk some more about investigations. If it seems like the OIG is constantly making work plan updates, it's because, well, they are. Who has the time to stay up on all those new changes? We do. Each month, CJ Wolf issues a monthly OIG work plan e-brief to make it easy for you to keep up with all the updates coming your way. Head over to healthicity.com slash resources to check out e-briefs, webinars, blogs, and so much more. Now let's get back to CJ for the rest of this episode of Compliance Conversations. Welcome back, everyone, from the break. Uh, Our guest again is Eric Allen. We're talking about compliance investigations, and we've, we've talked about some, some good things uh, already, um, and we're going to continue that conversation. You know, we started, Eric, talking about interviewing, um, and, and sometimes investigations can get emotional, um, and especially interviews. How Have you ever had to deal with emotional outbursts, and, and how do you deal with that? How do you stay calm? How do you stay objective? Um, any thoughts on that? Yes, I've seen both sides of the emotional outburst. I've seen in academia when you have the investigator that is extremely concerned about their career and they just go crazy on you. They're yelling, they're screaming, they're angry. Every word they can think of to insult you or the group is being used. <laughs> yes, I've been there. <laughs> and, and you're trying to stay on track and not take it personal. And, I, and that is the biggest challenge is understanding that it's not personal. They're fighting for their career. And, right. and that's where we have to kind of focus that. And on the flip side, I've had an individual that felt like, you know, she was targeted by the organization and scrutinized in a way that was unfair to her. Uh, and it was very challenging to have her crying in every session, talking about all that she's achieved for the organization which were all facts. She had done a lot for the organization, but she had also violated several policies. And I think the emotion of recognizing that she broke the rules, she was a high ranking individual that could have known better. And I think the, the, the impact of that and the gravity of what she knew she had to accept and what her colleagues would think of her um, was imminent. So it was up to my team to try to listen 
calm her and say, we're going to work through this, but not get to an emotional exchange that separates you away from your ability to be objective and to achieve the end goal. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's hard because we, like you just said, these are, you know, if somebody's being investigated, it could be their career. Um, it could be, um, you know, meaning some sort of discipline. Um, and so you try to say, Oh, don't take it personally. It's like, how, I, how can I do anything, but take it personally? You know, it's my, either my integrity or my work, uh, which I take very personally is being challenged in a way. And so it's um, one thing, and I don't know what your thoughts are on this. I, like one thing I've tried to do is just to make sure I don't use the word I, like I think, or, you know, I try to just, like you said earlier, the, the reporter's questions, who, what, where, when, why, um, right. And, and kind of stick to factual and um, as sanitized as possible, keeping opinion out of it. Um, does that, does that ring true to you? Is that a good approach? It's a definitely a good approach. The one thing I would add to that is you always want to acknowledge the person. Even if you don't say, I understand what you're going through, you got to at least acknowledge the fact that this is a situation that brings out a lot of emotion. Yeah. Uh, understanding what they're going through, because the biggest issue with you have when you have an emotional outburst is they're trying to get a response. And if you don't respond with anything, acknowledging what they've just said, it makes it worse, in my opinion, from what I've yeah. seen over time. It's just like, I'm pouring my heart out to you. You don't understand. I'm like, right. You got to acknowledge that and, and let them know I'm hearing you. Yes. Um, and then try to move back along track. But you cannot ignore their emotions and those emotional statements. Yeah, I, that's so good. It's almost like when you just said that, I almost thought you're you're in a way you're part therapist for a moment. <laughs> you're um, <laughs> like you just said, I'm hearing what you're saying, you know, and you said before in that other uh, scenario where the, the individual had given a lot to the organization, you know, it's, yeah, you, you know, I totally see that you've, you've done this and this, and I, I'm sure that's appreciated and, and it can be difficult. One thing that I have tried to do is, especially if I'm following a policy, um, when I sit down with the individual, I'll just outline the mechanics of the meeting. Um, I, I'm proposing today that we meet for, you know, our scheduled 45 minutes. If we need to go longer, if you have more to say, uh, we'll be happy to reschedule and, and do additional. Um, I do have to leave after 45 minutes. So I like to sometimes put bookends around it so that if it does get like super emotional, I know there's like a time period that I, I threw out there that will end at this time. I usually like to describe to them, um, you know, I'm following this policy. You have a right to do yada, yada, yada. So because usually the policy will have some sort of right that they can either have um, somebody with them or they could appeal eventually or, you know, whatever, just kind of outlining so that there's no surprises in the mechanics of the interview. Uh, I usually say, I'll, you know, I just basically will ask you for, um, you know, what you know, and I'm going to ask you these kinds of questions. And I think sometimes that puts people at ease as much as they can be <laughs> when they're being interviewed. Uh, have you ever tried any of those tactics or have you seen other things work? Well, what you identified are really good strategies to kind of disarm the person in some ways by giving them structure. A lot of times people go into these interviews and they've never been in one and they're just anxiety. Right. And, you know, and the main thing that you want to do is to bring the anxiety down by telling them just what you said. This is what we have to work with. These are my goals in this meeting or this investigation. 
and I and allowing them to have as much information as possible to empower them to be engaged in understanding what the process is and what their expectations are. Right. Uh, and I, I think that has been that is extremely successful. Uh, and one of the other things that, that I like that you brought up is trying to I call it my bailout is what I like to have. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and in some ways you get thrown a curveball. And at that moment, you automatically know this needs to end now. I need to go in another direction. And in that, I try to keep in my back pocket some ideas or things that I can use if I get that curveball in the actual interview. Gotcha. Yeah. Because you got to be prepared for that. Um, You know, and I think as interviewers and as investigators, we get more and more comfortable the more experience we've had. So um, sometimes, you know, for like a junior investigator, before you let them go out uh, and kind of do this thing on their own, we, you know, we've required that that uh, junior investigator observe, you know, a certain number of hours of interviews or something like that, just so that they're, they kind of uh, see by example or um, by modeling, you know, how we like the interviews to go, uh, that sort of thing. Um, one thing uh, that I wanted to ask you too is, Sometimes, you know, the person you're interviewing, they have right maybe to legal representation. Um, How does that change your whole process? Like, I'm imagining that's going to be a a major shift or maybe not. What what are your thoughts when the when the person you're interviewing either insists on legal um, representation or they already have them there? Well, before I say I'm going to go back to the, the previous question, I'll circle back. You brought up a good point about, you know, having people observe and become familiar. And that made me reflect on just basic interviewing and what questions are derived at getting what answers. Gotcha. And I think understanding what the expected outcome of the question or the line of questioning is helps those individuals that are learning how to become investigators um, figure out if they're on the right track or not or how they need to reposition the questionings that they're asking. Yeah. Um, and, and going back to the, the most recent question that you asked about legal representation, I think there's also a third situation that more senior uh, investigators might acknowledge as well. And that is when you can uh, notice within your interviewing that the person is responding as if they've already had legal counsel, uh-huh. although they haven't told you that they've had legal counsel. Uh-huh. And I will circle back to that one at the end. Now, when you have a situation in which a person is demanding legal counsel, that's, again, one of those curveballs. You say, OK, well, we can end this now, obtain legal counsel. We can reschedule because you don't want to give the appearance that you're trying to force them to answer questions without legal counsel present. And then that's, of course, going to be something that's going to be contentious in the future. So if they're demanding it, hey, no problem. That's your right go forward with that, we'll reschedule. And that's kind of an easy one as well. When they show up with legal counsel, hopefully at this point, if this is a serious investigation, you've already consulted with your legal counsel. They're aware of it. And in most of my cases, I I have them on standby just because of the sensitivity of the matter. So if they show up with counsel, I already got them on speed dial or quick email. I'll say, okay, Thank you for bringing your lawyer, blah, blah, blah. Legal counsel is on their way. We can wait 10 minutes and we can restart this. Blah, And that gives level playing field. Uh, But I also think that it's important to 
do that preliminary discussion with your legal team so they're not caught off guard and they are also prepared because again, you got people coming to these meetings that are trying to fight for their lives professionally, uh, for their integrity, uh, their position in the industry. And all those things are happening at once. Yep. And to circle back to the last one I brought up, and I'm sorry to kind of cut you off there, but no, you're good. There, once you've been through those situations, you notice how people omit things from their answers. You notice how they behave in their mannerisms. And an example of some one of those things is I had an individual that decided he knew he was wrong. He consulted with counsel, didn't tell anyone. And he ensured that no one else that was on the research team was available. He took them off the schedule that day. Uh, They had a previous engagement. He was deferring to them as the primary people doing the things that we had the questions about that had the most serious consequences. Uh, And then following that, we have to also understand that we can only penalize people that are in our organizations. Right. He went through as much as possible. Then he went forward and resigned, therefore minimizing the impact and allow him to go forward and restart his career someplace else if he chose to down the road. Gotcha. Without any repercussions. Yep. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I'm glad you kind of outlined all that because that was going to be one of my questions is if somebody says they want legal counsel or you know they're coming in, it's almost always a given then that you guys are on your side of the table is going to have legal counsel. I can't think of a scenario where, you know, a compliance professional might proceed with an interview with the interviewee having counsel, but the compliance professional not. Can, is that accurate? Or can you, are there scenarios where you might proceed? I, I can't think of any. There's only one and it's, it's a huge outlier. And that would be when the compliance person also serves in the legal role for the organization, which Good it point. shouldn't do. Uh, but a lot of times that is the only situation in which that person has the expertise from a compliance standpoint and the legal standpoint to represent the institution. Gotcha. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. Uh, You know, before you were talking about, um, and I I wanted to circle back to this because it's, it made me think you were talking about kind of questions and the right questions to ask. How did you obtain your experience? I I know that some organizations like the SCCE and the HCCA, they have workshops on how to be good investigators and interviewers. There's books on it. You know, there's, there's training that other agencies go through. I worked with an individual who was an ex FBI agent and that their training there made them very good at interviewing people. Um, how did you get your training? Do you have any formal training or was it mostly on the job or a mix? Well, in addition to the baptism by fire, <laughs> uh, ORI office of research integrity used to have what they called a boot camp. Okay. And that boot camp allowed you to go and work with FBI people, like you indicated, former lawyers and current lawyers, individuals within the federal government that all dealt with serious cases of research misconduct. And although the focus was research misconduct, the strategies and, and objectives, excuse me, the strategies and techniques you were learning could apply to any type of investigation when it came to Uh, assessing mannerisms and and body language, understanding the technological components, and most importantly, knowing what you don't know so you can go get the expertise so that you don't do a disservice to the investigation. Yeah. Yeah. And and what you just said about technological, I was, it just made me think, you know, nowadays, a lot of employees are working from home and stuff. 
do, have you ever done interviews like over the phone or via Zoom or something instead of in person? Or have most of your interviews been in person? And is there a, a pro or con either way? There's pros and cons to everything. I had one during COVID in particular in which we couldn't really interact with people. And that was different um, <laughs> because you, instead of a person's emotions showing, they would just turn the camera off. Ah. <laughs> Uh, so there are ways to circumvent allowing people to see your responses to the questions. Uh, if you appear rattled or if you can see you might want to veer away or dive in a little bit more. Um, being in person for some people is uncomfortable. So they are more comfortable online. Right. Um, so there's it depends on the situation. It depends on the people. Uh, I think I like them better in person. I get yeah. more out of it. Uh, what you need to do from a technological standpoint is really beef up what the expectations are. Like you outlined the parameters earlier. Um, you can't really force someone to keep their camera on or right. your microphone. So, you know, they could be saying all kind of stuff with a mic on muted and you have no idea. Right. Um yeah, yes. I, I think that you hit it on the head, like looking at their reaction to the questions, because so much of communication is nonverbal. Right. And mm -hmm. so I, I agree with you. I think in person or at least getting a good visual is really important because you, a lot of our communication is nonverbal and you pick up on cues. And um, so that's a really great point you made. Um, Eric, we're this time has flown by. We're getting close to the end here. Um, I, I always like to give the guests an opportunity to maybe close with any last minute thoughts. If they have any, uh, it can be about investigations. It can be about compliance in general, or I don't know who you're rooting for in, in, in baseball. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> any, any last minute thoughts for you? Well, I'm going to give one last minute thought. And I also want to end with a quote that I think will really um, hit home with this. And when it comes to investigations, the number one thing is to, not get flustered to develop a strategy and work from your strategy as much as you can until you build a comfort level to work off script and do the things we just talked about, assessing body language. So there's nothing wrong with that or having a more senior person with you, um, right. kind of like driver's ed. I mean, right. the worst thing you can do is do this alone for your pride and right. jeopardize your credibility as well as the organization's liability from not doing it properly. Right. And, and my last thought, you know, I, I'm a big basketball fan. I don't know if any of you know a guy by the name of Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf. Yeah. He said something very simple. Whatever you focus on grows. Your thoughts influence your behavior. Your behavior forms your character and your character determines your fate. So as you move forward in compliance, keep that in mind. I love that. that that's a great, a great quote. I appreciate you sharing that. And Eric, it's been a pleasure having you on as a guest. Appreciate your years of experience and um, your thoughtfulness in all of this. My pleasure. Uh, thank you for having me on the podcast. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Great. And thank you all to our, our listeners for listening to another episode of Compliance Conversations. If you like these, you know, uh, subscribe and, and share with, with colleagues. We, we love to, to uh, get the word out. If you have ideas 
um, for different topics, or if you know guests that you just think would be great, uh, let us know too. We, we'd like to um, to meet what, what our listening audience uh, would like to hear. So uh, until our next episode, happy compliance, everybody. Take care. Compliance Conversations is sponsored by Healthicity. Healthicity designs software and services that simplify compliance and auditing challenges that reduce your risk and save you money. Where others see complexity, we see simplicity. For more information, visit healthicity.com.